Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. All right, here we are. This is us. We're finally live. Welcome to the Focus Compounding Podcast. If you're viewing this on the video version, thank you so much if you're with us on YouTube. If you're listening to us on the podcast or Spotify, also thank you for that. We aren't going to break up the podcast anymore. We actually have video up. So if you like to consume uh, the content by watching us have our conversation, feel free to go to YouTube and it's just focused compounding and that will bring you to us. Um, If you are uh, just a podcast listener, thank you so much for tuning in with us on that avenue as well. Mr. Jeff Gannon, say hi to the camera. Hi. Hello. Hello. Um, <laughs> it's so funny. It's so weird being in this in this version. We're like in a, still in the office where we normally record, but now we're like sitting much closer. And thank you so much uh, for tuning in. We're kind of going to play with this probably for the next couple of weeks till we find something that um, we like, uh, but we're going to kind of roll with it. So um, if you are listening and uh, you want to join Jeff's weekly gazette that he sends out. We used to call it a memo, but now we're calling it a gazette, getting really fancy. Um, Go to focuscompoundinggazette.com and you'll see a 2,000 normally plus word um, free stock right up. And then we're going to also put other stuff in there as well. Um, And I get a weekly column called What's on Andrew's Mind. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in that, definitely sign up for that and then that'll get you on the email list. So uh, today we're going to be going over for this podcast um, a bunch of questions that people have asked of us. Again, if you want to um, have a, a question answered on the podcast, feel free to DM me or email at info at focuscompounding.com. I compile them all together, and then we'll definitely bring them up on the show um, if it's something that we think is relevant. Um, and we'll just jump right into it. So the first question that somebody asked, um, he says, since overlooked stocks are more obscure, mm-hmm. how do you go about finding ideas? Uh, well, you probably know the answer to this, but uh, we were actually just talking recently with the guy who runs Kenkyo Investing, uh, and I was talking about how I don't run screens. He was talking about the same thing, that he doesn't run screens. And so the truth is mostly getting it from uh, people who know what I'm looking for. So it mostly from people who also run sites, who invest themselves, uh, manage funds, all sorts of things like that, have an idea. They want me to look at the idea sometimes to give them my opinion about it. Uh, sometimes we just share ideas, you know, that sort of thing. I mentioned uh, Phil Fisher talked about that sometimes that that was been his best that was during his life his best source of ideas, and I found that to be true from too. other people. Talking to other people, yeah, kind of know, like, if they know you, they know what kind of thing you're looking it's for. It's like if we're they don't, you know. taking the Monish Pabrai route, right? He says how he doesn't have an analyst team and how he yeah. thinks like having an analyst team is actually like would detract from being a better investor. But he says that people send him ideas all the time. That's true. And, um, you know, that's they say, hey, Monish, you know, you're looking for your PEs of one or whatever mm-hmm. or international. He looks for, I would say, a lot of stocks are overlooked. Maybe not Fiat Chrysler, but he's a big investor in like India and, and of course, invests in other companies that no one talks about. But he has said before that people just send him ideas all the time, and that's a good source of 
idea flow for him. Yeah. So also, I there are certain sites and things where I um, gather all the names of stocks they've ever looked at. Yeah. Um, so I've talked about that before. Uh, we had Nate from Oddball Stocks on, um, and I've taken every stock that he ever wrote about, put it in an Excel file, uh, keep track of all that. That's true for Corner of Berkshire and Fairfax, Value Investors Club. What I do is I take all the names of anything they've covered up before in the past, and I keep them offline to have those ideas. Uh, also, anything I've looked at myself. A lot of ideas are from things that I looked at you know, five, ten years ago, and then the price of the stock changed. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And we tweeted out a good piece of content on yeah. how to define an overlooked stock. Okay. And this is something that you've kind of refined, I think, since mm-hmm. running our firm. So right. do you want to tell them how you define an overlooked stock? If yeah, the main way to take for finding overlooked stocks is the number of shares traded uh, divided by... Uh, the total number of shares outstanding. That's the most useful number. We actually did a podcast where we talked a lot about that number, like sort of talked about it as an illiquid yeah. uh, measure of illiquidity, but it's not just a measure of illiquidity. It actually tells you sort of uh, how interested people are in the stock. Another thing I was talking to someone about recently is actually if you look at a stock's beta. So it tends to be, surprisingly, that the number of shares traded divided by the shares outstanding and the beta uh, are much more correlated than you would think. So actually, very low beta stocks um, tend to be a better place to look for overlooked things. Because they don't, I mean, technically, if they have a beta less than one, they're not exactly moving with the market. Right. Right. So you're saying that that can mean that they're just more overlooked. People aren't looking at these ideas. Yeah, it's not clear why that happens exactly. This is an interesting question. They also tend to outperform the market. Uh, both shares traded divided by shares outstanding and very low beta. Yeah. And so why is this? Um, for some reason, they're, they move less with uh, the most of the things that funds buy you know most of the things that individual investors buy is just they don't move as much with the market yeah and it's unclear why things that don't move as much with the market uh perform so well and are overlooked that way it's also you know i I just the reason why i would also use low beta um is because it's something you can find at a lot of websites yeah sure so a hint that something might not be overlooked is if it has a beta around one now that's not a guarantee uh, we've owned stocks that maybe briefly, depending on how places measured it, if some websites were using a very short-term measure of beta, it might look kind of high. I don't know that we've ever owned anything that's much above one. Um, and usually it's a lot below one. Do you think that could be kind of skewed? Because since owning NACO, mm-hmm. the beta has definitely gone up, but yeah. really because it's only had like one or two big moves. You know what I'm saying? Like it's done a lot of, right. like from watching the portfolio. I feel like a lot of our companies, they do a lot of nothing. And then they just have a couple big moves too. Yeah, you know? well, the way beta is calculated, NACO would actually um, not be our highest beta one, is my guess. Mm-hmm. I'm not my guess. I think that's correct. That, yeah. That's correct. And because of the way of the volatility, I know that it had a bigger one day move than anything else that we've had. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, so I would use both of those. I would use uh, sh- shares. Uh, so basically, the number that's easy to get is the average daily trading volume so i talked about that yeah so that's an approximation you can take the average daily trading volume you find on a website multiply it by five multiply that by 52 and that's an approximation of how many shares would trade in a and, year. and the rationale is obviously if the float's not turning over as much then most people probably aren't familiar with the company yeah, yeah. and then also check the beta too for both of those mm-hmm. so when we've talked about it and if both of those are low so like if you find that the beta is 0.5 and the shares traded divided by the shares outstanding are 50 percent in a year yeah that's an overlooked stock whereas if it's uh, uh like a hundred 
Uh, so like 100% of the shares uh, turnover in a year. And the beta is one. That's probably not an overlooked stock. I'm just giving you both of them because something could be happening that would throw one of them off. But they're so correlated that there's uh, it's unlikely that something um, that has pretty high numbers in both of those would be overlooked. Sure. Yeah. No, I think that's a pretty good explanation. Okay. Next question. And let's just get this out because so many people have been emailing me and messaging me on Twitter okay. and this is all your fault yeah. and you gave no explanation. Right. It says, what happened to the Gannon on Investing blog? Is the, yeah. all the old content gone? This is how I, this is mm-hmm. how you and I came to be was your blog. That's correct. And I've been reading your blog for a very long time. And I was mm-hmm. telling Jeff on the way here that even myself, yeah. if I want to look up an old article or an old concept that Jeff wrote about in the past, I would just type in, okay, for example, free cash flow on Google, free cash flow, Gannon Investing or Jeff Gannon. Mm-hmm. It, would call, it would bring you right to all of your articles. Right. They're gone. They evaporated. Yeah, it's been replaced with the Focus Compound in Gazette.com. There's a lot of people who are upset. <laughs> yeah. We so still, how can but how can they get access to all that old information? Oh uh, well, you can use the Wayback Machine. You can use the Internet uh, Archive, whatever it's called. Yeah. So use Wayback Machine, and you should be able to get access to it. But we're if talking you know how to do that. Yeah. But if not, we'll give. Uh, yes. you the information and you'll probably be tweeting that stuff out over time yeah probably so yeah. follow me on twitter at focus compound that'll be better because it's an easier way to rediscover some of the things there's so much on there that no one looks at yeah because they don't know where it is and how to find it so it'll be an easy way for you to do that to put it out with some context yeah cool cool um next question how do you screen for international stocks is your screening different from when you screen for u.s companies since the accounting can be different overseas yeah, so I would only screen for like EV to EBITDA if I was running screens internationally. So you're moving up the income statement pretty much. Yeah, you don't. But that's true for most things I do. I don't – I find almost nothing through screens. And um, when I do run screens, I use a very wide net, like something like EV to EBITDA. The reason why you would do that is um, it's easy to have something thrown off by accounting differences or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. I have a uh, I use a particular site in the UK, but generally for most countries, uh, I I don't screen and stuff. And um, I'd say a lot of the screening stuff isn't very reliable um, in a lot of countries. So I get most foreign ideas that we have from talking to people from that country. Got it. Cool. When valuing a company, do you consider earnings to be net income? Or free cash flow, or sorry, cash flow from operations. Um, and I thought it was a good question because everyone kind of has, um, you know, sometimes people do it based upon like EBITDA, EBIT. Right. We've talked about sometimes we do it on price of sales. I think it really depends on the company, but he asked for free cash flow, cash flow from operations, or net income. Yeah, I mean, it, it you calculate it yourself using common sense for each individual case. Uh, yeah. We own a Timberland company. Uh, they can report higher free cash flow or higher earnings uh, if they cut down more trees. But uh, the way that I calculate their earnings wouldn't change based on how many trees they cut down. So um, it, it just has to do with their uh, with how much I think the value that you get uh, for it. So I would say, um, you know, it, it depends. Uh, often for something like a insurer or something, you would use the change in book value, so comprehensive income. Uh, comprehensive income is often a better measure than net income. I can't really think of any case where it would literally be net income. Comprehensive income is closer to how Berkshire used the calculation of the change in book value. Yeah, uh, It takes into account other things which don't appear in the income statement um, or don't appear in the net income statement. Um, net income is the least likely to use. Uh, free cash flow, yeah, but 
free cash flow also can be thrown off by yearly things. Any one year's free cash flow isn't that reliable of a measure. For some companies it is. For a service type company, it's fine. Uh, we own a core processor. We own something that's an information type systems uh, company too. And uh, in that case, it's probably pretty accurate. But that's just sort of because it doesn't matter that much. I mean, I've talked to people about like ad agencies or something like many service companies. Yeah. Free cash flow, earnings, they're barely different, maybe 5% different. Any given year is pretty accurate what your level of earnings is. But when you're talking about other kinds of companies that are not service companies that are more cyclical, then this year's earnings are not the calculation that I'm making. I'm, I'm not using this year's earnings ever. Do you think, um, and obviously this is a great question, because we get asked stuff like this all the time. But do you think when you say stop reading investing books and start actually like reading annual reports, this mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why? So you could get real world common sense of how to value companies and stuff yeah. like that. Like you sent out something where I said we don't like to pay more than 13 times earnings. Yeah. I hope people don't misunderstand that to mean that if the P is 14 or something, we won't uh, uh, buy it. Sometimes the P is is uh, 12 and it's actually a lot more expensive than 13 times what I think earnings are. Yeah. But sometimes it's less. Uh, I bought a company, uh, Frost, uh, years ago, uh, and I think it was around 13 times earnings, maybe a little tiny bit less than that. Um, but that was a bank and the Fed funds rate was 0.25%. Mm-hmm. So I figured I was actually buying it at more of like a single digit type um, P ratio. Uh, similarly, I bought uh, Hunter Douglas, and my calculation there is based on normal amount of uh, housing activity. So, and there hasn't been any, by my measure, and maybe people disagree, but the housing market hasn't been normal since the crisis. So, we've had no years that I would calculate as being actually in line with long term trends. Mm-hmm. So, every year, so I would say their earnings have, over for what is it now, 10 years in a row, have been below what I would consider their normal earnings to be. Got it. Uh, you know, so it depends on cyclical issues and things like that. For service type companies, free cash flow is usually better because yeah. they throw off cash. Yeah, I mean, free cash flow is what matters. The increase in value, but I mean, we've also done things. When I research things that have to do with real estate or something, then I'm using you know comprehensive type numbers or fair value type numbers. Yeah, got it, got it, got it. This is a question I can answer. Okay, what's the process for becoming an investor in your firm? Okay, go ahead and answer. And um, we custody all of our assets at Interactive Brokers. Um, uh, so really from there, when a client says, go to us, we send them a email that comes from our master account, but it's from interactive brokers. The client opens up the account in their name. We're just the managers on the account and just allocate the portfolio. Um, really from there, if, I mean, we speak, I've spoken to every single one of our investors. I like to really chat with them beforehand because we do know that our assets are going to top out at some point. So we want to make sure that we have the right type of investors in our firm, which we've been very grateful for because, I mean, I talked to our investors. How many times have you talked to our investors? Twice, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Know, maybe twice. Yeah. So, you know, we, we just have a very good group of investors. And, you know, I was speaking to someone recently and he was saying that um, he doesn't check ever, you know, and that he checks the the monthly letters that Jeff sends out, but you know it's really hands off. So we kind of vet everyone that does come to us. Um, but that's the process: is really just you know reach out info at focuscompounding.com, or you go to Focus Compounding on the Invest with Us page and set up a time to chat. Um, you'll be speaking with me. All correspondence goes through me. Um, you know, and it's and but you can't expect a letter from Jeff yeah. once a month, and then a quarterly letter. It's as not well. a long letter. Yeah, no, just it's just a memo. Just, yeah, it's just a one-page memo yeah. on 
Sometimes it's changes within the portfolio or just whatever's pretty much on his mind. It's usually something that I uh, don't want to discuss publicly. So yeah. It's like a new position or something. It's things that I won't talk about with non-clients. Yeah. 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 So that is how you uh, do that. Okay. Next question says, some fund managers like Joel Greenblatt talk about feeling more indifferent about their personal portfolios, but having more feelings about the money they manage for other people. What has your experience been? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I said before, yeah, for one thing, I'd own fewer stocks if it was just me. Um, uh, we've tended to own five in the managed account, sometimes a little cash. So, you know, you could call that six or something in terms yeah. of the number of positions. Um, like slots that there are in the portfolio, basically. I would probably own three or something if it was just me. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in terms of daily moves, it does sometimes make me think about that. Um, that uh, I, I mean, I never think about a stock moving up for the day unless there's some big event um, that happened. Uh, and I know that sometimes if people are checking things that they would see that and they yeah. wonder about it. Sure. Especially since we are a managed accounts firm. Yeah. They see a, what goes on daily. They yeah. can watch it minute and, by minute. If they and want when it. we started out, that was one of the questions that I had a lot about, about whether we wanted to do that. Managed accounts are great for clients, but the downside is uh, they get to see everything. And so I wondered how much people would um, think about daily fluctuations and things. Yeah. Because uh, especially with wide bid ask spreads and things, we sometimes have four or five percent moves in one stock just from uh, people putting in orders or not putting in limit orders or whatever yeah. it might be, um, which isn't really a change in the value of the stock probably. Like, I mean, sometimes you see the last trade moves 4 or 5% without the bid and the ask moving. And yeah. to me, if the bid and the ask didn't move, then really there's been no change in the price really. Sure. Um, but that can confuse people. We have things in foreign currencies. So movements in, uh, you know, things in uh, foreign stock markets which aren't hedged. Yeah. So movements in that currency um, would show up to people um you know all sorts of things like that that um so you know so you would you would own fewer stocks is what you're saying though i would own fewer stocks yeah yeah, definitely and we're already very concentrated and and one thing i found interesting so i tweeted out last week it was monish pabrai i think he was speaking to london business school and i always talk about this concept of like moving upstream to learn about people who you otherwise couldn't get into contact with Mm -hmm. and you know, so for example, like I probably can't get into contact with like Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, right? right? But Monish has said that once a month or whatever, he meets up with Charlie to play bridge and he's mm-hmm. willing to share these stories in these talks. So it's like you could learn a lot about these people just from people that are sort of in their circle. Right. But um, Monish was saying that he's been on the Buffett archive and he went to uh, it's buffett.cnbc.com or whatever. And he was in 1996. And I think Buffett was talking about a stock that he personally owned. Mm-hmm. So recently, um, Monish was asking Munger, Mr. Munger, yeah. um, what stock Warren Buffett was talking about in his personal portfolio. And he said that Charlie couldn't remember. Mm-hmm. But um, when they started or when you know Berkshire became a thing, him and his wife kept around 20 to 30 million outside of Berkshire, which right. was his personal portfolio. Buffett's, yeah. Yeah. And Munger said that that portfolio that value is now anywhere from like two to three billion dollars mm-hmm. but he did say when he was investing in his own personal portfolio he owned majority of the time like two to th- two to three stocks sometimes he did stuff with leverage sometimes he did stuff with options but majority of it was two to three stocks so i just thought yeah. it was kind of interesting because obviously he doesn't manage berkshire like that but in his personal portfolio he does yeah well one case we know like um that for a fact with us 
is people may know because I wrote about it that before the managed accounts, I had fifty percent of my own money yeah. in NACO. But when we had the managed accounts, NACO, the position in NACO was not fifty percent. Yeah, sure. It was like half of that. So you know why was that? It was because you know I ran things differently when I had uh, when I was investing money for clients than I did uh, for myself only. So yeah, I would say that I think it's easier to run money for yourself. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Last question. Um, this gentleman said um, that obviously Jeff reads a bunch of 10Ks every mm-hmm. single week. Um, and then he said, what are you looking for in order to qualify a business for initial interest write-up? Oh, so we should explain what that And means. he said, mainly I ask, due to many of the write-ups still get slapped with a low follow-up interest rating? Yes. An example, 20%. Yeah, a lot of people <laughs> pointed that out, that they have very low ratings. So um, so over at the Focus Compounding website, I write up things from time to time, and I talk about it as an initial interest post. So like the most recent one that I remember doing uh, at the time we're recording, this might be different by the time you're seeing this or listening to this, is uh, Farmer Mac, right? Yep. And I think I put a 50% initial interest in it. And that may have surprised people because I said lots of positive things about it throughout the whole the whole article. Um, but I, I bet a lot of the ones I've done have 50% or less, meaning that I would say there's less than a 50% chance that I'll follow up on it. So what I mean in those uh, articles is I'm just telling you uh, I'm not really deciding whether I like the stock or not, but I'm deciding whether I would follow up with it. And um, the ones I can think of from this year – yeah, they probably got pretty low ratings generally. Yeah. Uh, early on, there were some that got like 90% ratings or something, and some of them ended up in our portfolio. Some, for various reasons, stuff happened with them, so they couldn't end up in the portfolio. Pendrel was one of them yeah. that got 90%. So, um, so is it really based on stuff that you think could be in the portfolio? Yeah, but I mean, so I don't even write – so there's some that I don't even write up. So yeah. I think the question is sort of asking, if I give such low ratings even to those, then what – do I find originally that even makes me want to do an initial interest about a stock? So the reason why I would do an initial interest write-up is the stock seems to have the potential to be interesting, uh, but not that it is. So uh, Farmer Mac was a good example of that. Yeah. Uh, the dividend yield was probably around 4% at the time. The, it was retaining two-thirds of its earnings. So it probably had a P like a little under eight or around eight or something like that. Uh, and it was probably growing 10% a year or had recently grown like 10% a year. Um, I figured that I could understand a business that was similar to like um, Fannie and Freddie. Yeah. And uh, I figured that if it grew at all, you know, it would have high returns that way. If you think about it, let's say a stock goes from a P of eight to 15 over like 10 years. It has a dividend yield of like 4%. Um, you're going to get a return of 10% or better in that stock uh, just from the P going from 8 to 15 uh, without any growth. So if the company grows like 10% a year, you're going to get like a 20% return over mm-hmm. 10 years. So a stock that could return 10 to 20% a year yeah. uh, in a subject, a financial company, that I feel like I know enough about financial companies that I could analyze it. Um, yeah, so it had that potential. Uh, I decided with that one it wasn't an overlooked enough stock for us. Uh, there was another stock that I did that I gave a very low rating to, very low initial interest rating to, uh, and it had something to do with the auditor. I didn't like the auditor and stuff when I looked into it. But you can understand that if I had found that I loved the management of that company, given the uh, f- the valuation and, and things like that, like on the, the numbers, uh, it looked like it could be potentially interesting. So it really depends. If it looks interesting on the numbers, yeah. 
um, then I might do it. So it's basically by looking at like a 10-year history of the company maybe, uh, the PE, the price to book, the return on equity. You know, is the return on equity 10% or higher? Has it had a long series of uh, profitability? Things like that. Um, that it might be interesting. Uh, you know, I did a in the Focus Compounding Gazette um, that we put out recently, uh, I had 10 overlooked stocks to watch. That's a good example because I'll pull whatever initial interest posts I do from that list of 10. So mm-hmm. like my next one is going to be one of those 10, I can tell you now. And that's a good example of what kind of things I look at and then pass on. Yeah. And a lot of them uh, you can see in that list. And they'll come out each week. So if you sign up for it, you can see what 10 those are. Um, you know, th- th- there's it has the potential to be interesting, but something might disqualify it. And so usually what we're talking about about why I wouldn't write it up is something disqualified it. And I don't really get into talking about the stocks that I pass on so quickly that way. Yeah. Like one of the ones I wrote up with the auditor issue that I didn't like the auditor. What um, was that company? <laughs> see, <laughs> I probably should have written up at all. Yeah. Because so I did a very long post about it. Yeah. Um, but I should have discovered earlier on that I wasn't happy about that and that that was going to eliminate from consideration. Same same thing like with Farmer Mac. I was going back and forth. Is it overlooked enough? Is it not? And so with the ones that I don't write up, there's something quicker that I decide to eliminate them. Uh, there was another one that I should have eliminated because I felt we couldn't get enough shares of it for the managed accounts. Uh-huh. Uh, but it wasn't 100% clear that that would be the case immediately to me. It was pretty clear, but not 100%. And so I already started doing work on it. So I figured I'll just put out an article for members because I've done so much uh, like looking at it. You know, they like to see what I'm looking at and maybe they would buy it personally at some time or something, yeah. you know. So because um, that was like a $2 million company or something. So that's really not yeah. possible for us to invest in unless there's something really unusual with uh, like no insider ownership, lots of share turnover but uh but there's a 10 million dollar uh company that's on the watch list and it's possible for us to invest in it's would be difficult but not impossible so i could definitely write that up mm-hmm. so it, you know you can't know right away cool cool well i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us in today's podcast whether you are on youtube or listening to us through spotify or the podcast app I want to thank you so much and thanks for bearing with us you know we're gonna see how this we like this audio maybe we'll change up the background or get a new you know situation going but okay. we're gonna we're gonna kind of roll with it and um you know we're gonna get better so i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in if you are watching on youtube feel free to subscribe and hit that thumbs up button that's how that's good for youtube, YouTube. and then if you're on itunes okay <laughs> Leave us a rating and review, and we'll greatly appreciate it. Hope everybody has a great day. We'll see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.